I would say that I'm a lot like my father um, in many ways, and we're also very different. My, I think all of us probably have something, but for me, um, as just an individual person and an athlete and a thought leader, I think I'm, I'm a lot like my father. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I am Andrew Hawkins, better known as Hawk, and this is season four of Needing Dough. On this show, I sit down with the most recognizable athletes in the world to have a candid conversation about their experiences with money. And our hope is that you, the listener, pick up some tips and tricks along the way to apply to your everyday finances as well. And that's where I come in. As a former NFL wide receiver, I'm here to bring my own personal perspective on how the lessons you're going to hear translate to you and your life. Now, before we get into this conversation with the iconic Layla Ali, this show is brought to you by Uninterrupted and Chase. Be sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It's free, it helps others find the show, and it notifies you every time we drop a new episode. And now I am honored to introduce to you the boxing legend, TV personality, entrepreneur, and the baddest mom on planet Earth, Layla Ali. On today's show, we are honing in on financial foundations, which are the lessons we picked up from our parents, the knowledge we gained on our own along the way, and how we're passing that wisdom along to the next generation, our kids. And as the daughter of Muhammad Ali, Layla knows a few things about taking advice from your parents and forging your own path. All right, so let's get to it. Layla, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you for that introduction. Wow, I feel great. <laughs> All right, perfect, perfect. All right, so let's start with the most obvious question. You are the daughter of a worldwide icon, Muhammad Ali. For you as a child, was that something you find yourself leaning into or more kind of shying away from it? Well, you know, really depending on the situation, whether I wanted to lean into it or shy away from it, to be honest with you. But I would say for the most part, overall, I really wanted to develop my own success in life from a very young age. I was like, you know, I don't want to just be Muhammad Ali's daughter. I don't want people trying to be my friend because they're trying to figure out what they can get from me. So early on, I really tried to develop my own identity outside of my father. And if any, if someone didn't know my father was Muhammad Ali, I didn't tell them. Mm. So, I mean, you wanted to develop your own identity, have your own independent thoughts. Like, is that something that was already in your DNA or do you think the circumstances kind of, you know, made you take that position as a kid? You know, I think it was definitely a part of who I am um, as a person because, you know, all of my siblings have approached being Muhammad Ali's daughters or son differently. Um, for me, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I've always been that type of person that was big on character and integrity. And for me, you should always like somebody for who they are, not because of their background or what you can get from them or what they can do for you. And I learned that at a young age because, you know, you learn in school when people are trying to be your friend and they're asking you questions. Oh, I heard you're Muhammad Ali's daughter. And then all of a sudden here they come at uh, nutrition or lunch trying to hang out with you. And it's just like, wow, you don't even know me. That's all you know about me. So I learned that really early. And I said, oh, OK, so it's better for people not to know. And then I could find out, you know, if you really like me for me or for my father. Now, that was from my, you know, young mindset. But it's, of course, that's kind of stayed with me. Um, but I take mm -hmm. a, a different approach on how I kind of handle myself in that area. Do you find that the expectations of just, again, being the, the daughter of an icon, do you find they were hard to kind of battle with early on in life? And how did you cope with that? 
Um, you know, I think that for the most part, you would think life is easier, right? Being Muhammad Ali's mm. daughter, that people are going to roll out the red carpet for you. And in certain instances, they did. But when I decided to become a boxer, for example, it was tough because there was a light shined on me. There was eyeballs on me when I was simply trying to learn how to box, trying to figure things out for myself. So that gave uh, a tremendous amount of pressure that came along with the pressure I already had on me because I just wasn't ever an athlete when I decided to become a boxer and I had to learn everything about that. Um, but I think, you know, being the person that I am, I try, I turn that pressure into something positive and I use it to really uplift me and catapult me into becoming a champion. That's amazing. And, and you talked about people just assuming that the, the children of celebrities kind of have like life easy breezy and, you know, everything is on easy street for them. But, you know, the more I, I've, I've researched about you and seen you speak, that is not your reality at all, right? Well, I would say that it just really depends person to person and every situation is different. Um, you know, we always think the grass is greener from the other side. We always think something's going to be easier until you actually get in it. A lot of people assume that celebrities, athletes, anyone with a lot of money as well, that life is easier. But with more money comes more problems, comes all different sorts of situations that you have to deal with. And life isn't necessarily easier, especially when you're someone I don't really have to deal with this, say, like a LeBron or a Beyonce. They can't even go down the street without somebody, you know, crowds coming around them. You can't even live your life. The average person would never even think about that. But that's part of what comes with the territory. So people aren't going to complain about it. But it's definitely something that is just a part of life as a recognizable person. And that's not always fun, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound fun. Again, I don't got that problem either. So I wouldn't know. But yeah, um, the pros so, and cons, was, the pros and cons, you know, there it is. What what was early on in your, in your life? Like, what was the biggest thing that you probably learned about yourself in that situation? Because it's hard, like, when you're living life and this is just your reality, you're like, oh, that's just my dad. And this is, you know, how people react to him or these are the things that I deal with, figuring out that other people don't have, like, again, the same issues or problems that you have. They're very much different, not any easier by any stretch of the imagination. But at what point did you start to figure out things about yourself, understanding like, oh, OK, this is the kind of person that I am. Layla Ali, independent of all the hoopla around my family name? Oh, my God, that that question's tough for me to answer because there's been so many different instances when I realized that about myself. Growing up, the most famous man, global icon, most loved famous man in the world. Mm. Obviously, you know, I lived a certain lifestyle. I saw so much. I saw so many different personalities, been in so many different situations, just being around that. So my father being Muhammad Ali really shaped the way that I view the world and I view people. So that's just one thing. Um, I obviously don't have that level of fame, thank God, that my father had, which is absolutely fine with me, but it shaped me, like I said, and how I deal with people. So I'm just an authentic person. I'm the same person in any setting around anybody in any situation for the most part. Um, obviously, I'm two different people inside and outside of the ring, right? But in general, um, you know, you get what you get with me. So that's something that I think is very similar to my father. Um, that's one of the pe reasons why people loved him so much because he, he stood firmly in what he believed and who he was as a person. And he had a strong sense of, um, who he was and him, his self, you know, and confidence in himself. And I think once you have that, then you can really be successful in any area of your life. Mm. Do, do you think you, you, one of your siblings was probably most like your father or do you think you're more like your mom? I would say that I'm a lot like my father um, in many ways, and we're also very different. My, I think all of us probably have something. My sister, Hannah, 
um, who's daddy's girl, you know, most people would assume it's me because I followed him into the ring, but I'm absolutely not. Mm-hmm. This is my sister, Hannah, that was his fave and daddy's girl. And she's a lot like my father as well, as far as, far as him, the poet, him, the humanitarian, you know. But for me, um, as just an individual person and an athlete and a thought leader, I think I'm, I'm a lot like my father. That's amazing. So, I mean, you grew up, you know, again, not a situation where you guys, you know, were without, but you probably thought about money still in, in, in that stretch, or maybe you didn't, but what was your like early experiences about money? What were your thoughts? Cause again, it's different for everybody. Me growing up, I like, I didn't have anything. So I didn't think about money because I didn't even think it was something that a family like ours could attain. You know, we're just trying to, my mom would save money for like Christmas, right? That was a big thing for us. So I didn't even think about money because there was no money to think about for you. Was it a similar situation from the other end or were you very money conscious? You know, money was never something that I had to be worried about or concerned about growing up. If I wanted some money, I could ask my dad for some money. If I wanted to buy something, you know, an outfit, I would just ask for it and I would get it. Um, I wouldn't say that um, I was overly spoiled, but then again, you know, it's all relative. Right. But right, I would right. say that for me, you know, I wasn't like, oh, my God, I wish I had more money. Right. Because we always had money. Um, But Mm -hmm. we were aware that we were in a great situation. You know, we lived in a private gated neighborhood. I I grew up in a mansion. You know, we we flew on private jets a lot of the time. You know, so it was very clear to me that um, my father was was making a lot of money, but it's not something that he valued high um, in terms of you know, having money was like, what am I going to do with this money? And a lot of what my father did with his money was give back to other people to make donations. Mm-hmm. You know, he was Muslim. He'd give to the, to the, um, to Islam, you know, and to the mosque, um, which is where they'd go for prayer. And he would, he would give to organizations that were in support of the causes that were important to him. So, um, I never viewed money as something that was like, oh, this is going to give me power either, because a lot of times people want the money and they want the power that goes along with it. Right. Because unfortunately, people respect people who have more money. Right. Um, because of what they can do for them or do for the world or so be it. Um, that wasn't how my father used money. So it also shaped the way that I looked at money. So, so where do you get your entrepreneurial spirit from? Right. Like, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I, I wanted to go get money. Wasn't heavy on your radar. You just have that entrepreneurial spirit just in general? Where do you think that comes from? I think that my entrepreneurial spirit definitely got developed when I decided I wanted to be independent and I wanted to be in control of my own life, my own destiny, my own schedule, all of those things. So once I figured that out, I said, hmm, you know, how can I go to school full time, live on my own, have money in my pocket, you know, all of that. Oh, I'm going to start a business. So then that's where this idea to become an entrepreneur came from. Then, of course, I have the creative side to me. I'm, think- I'm always thinking about, oh, this is a service that people would want or this is an item that people would want. You know, so it's just I have I have that thought process and then never thinking, oh, I need to go work for someone. It's like I want to do this for myself because I want to be in in control. So and then I'm also willing to put in the hours because there's so much work that goes on. When you have when you're an entrepreneur, you have your own business. It doesn't shut down at a certain time. It ain't like you clock out five o'clock. I'm off. You know, sometimes I'm up at two o'clock in the morning after my husband and kids go to sleep. And I'm like, okay, let me catch up on them emails that I couldn't finish before I started cooking dinner. You know, so it's like I have multiple things going on. But I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, it's like it's almost like I create this pressure for myself because I do well under pressure. And it 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 makes me feel good to see something come to fruition that I've been planning for a long time. 
Mm, that's a word, Layla. I ain't, I ain't <laughs> joking, man. For real. So, Layla, what was your like first official real job where you had a steady paycheck coming in? I was visiting my father for the summer in Berrien Springs, Michigan, when I was about 15 years old and decided to get a job at the neighborhood burger joint. And everybody else was enjoying their summer. And I said, you know what? I want to make a check. So I signed myself up for this job. But I didn't care. It was really about just having a job and making a paycheck. And I didn't feel, look, I'm also the person that got a, my first car on my own when I was 15. What am I supposed to be driving yet? And went through um, the Recycler magazine and bought this 77 Toyota Celica. I can remember it was like this brown, rusty color, and it only cost me $400. I had that car for two weeks and it broke down. But honey, I, was, I thought I was living the high life when I was, when I was riding that car. Hey, that, that two weeks was uh, everything, I'm sure. That's amazing. That really does say like just a, a lot about your own personality of like you're willing to do anything. That, that's what I look for in other people is like if you want something, if you like whether it's money, whether it's a, an opportunity, whether it's a job, you're going to do whatever it takes and be willing to do it. Like there's no ego around that. So and for you, even though that was your first job, it really has you know, kind of been the through line through your boxing career, your your career as an entrepreneur, TV personality, you name it. For, for you, what was the biggest thing that, that minimum wage job in your neighborhood taught you? Independence, responsibility, um, you know, uh, pride for myself. Um, you know, because when you're when you're clocking in, you're getting up, you're there, you're doing honest work, something that you can feel good about. Um, that's a good feeling to have. You know, and for me, obviously, being so young, that was perfect for me at the time. Um, now, like, you know, I want I want more for myself as an entrepreneur. Um, but that was a great experience for me. Then I went on and started my first business was actually a cleaning service in my neighborhood where I kind of put flyers around the neighborhood for a cleaning service, which is crazy, because at the time, I think I was. 12. Then I started my first business and I, I probably got a couple of a couple of little clients that never hired me again. Once they saw a 12 year old that showed up at their door, they probably were like, OK, we're going to just have you wipe down the kitchen counter and here's your 20 dollars. You can go. But that was my first business that I started. So I've always been really independent and willing to do whatever I need to do to be successful. That, that's amazing, though. <laughs> I mean, I, I really do find that I feel like successful people in their adulthood, what you realize is they're not that much different than when they were kids. Like, it's the same mentality. Most people can look at themselves at 30, 40, 50 years old and, and see that same kind of person in their own childhood and who they were back then. So for you 12 years old, starting your own cleaning service, doing the flyers, hanging them up, that's, I mean, that's doing the work. That's why it's so important, to your point, to instill these characteristics in children while they're young. Because just like mm. you see successful people have the same characteristics they had when they were younger, so do unsuccessful people. So a lot of times, if you're a young person or a young adult who's lazy, who doesn't want to, doesn't keep their word, you know, you can't, you can't trust them. They have no integrity. They're showing you bad character. People usually will continue to be that way as they go through life. So that's some, that's a problem you want to nip in the bud early on, you know. And if you see you have those habits, and you need to surround yourself with people who can inspire you to be better and to strive for more in life. What an incredible lesson from Layla. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, learning the value of a dollar and feeling that sense of accomplishment after a hard day's work is truly invaluable. I remember my first job as a paper boy delivering the local newspaper. I did not make much at all. I think I was paid about $100 a month. And for that, I had to wake up every day at 5 a.m., bag the papers and have them delivered 
to all the houses in my neighborhood by 6.15. That was not an easy task, treading up those hills every single morning. But what it gave me was a sense of success knowing that I was waking up every day, putting in the work to determine my own destiny. Financial foundations, work ethic, living up to your commitments. I mean, these may seem like simple things, but for people who are looking to achieve their maximum potential in life, having those things ingrained can make all the difference in the world. All right, now let's get to it. When you talk about parents, I mean, your parents grew up a lot differently than you did. But did you find your mother and father, you know, taking things away from how they grew up and applying it to how they raised their children? And you can start with your mother. You know, my mother um, definitely was learning a lot along the way as a mom. I will say that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure now um, she's very happy that my, my sister and I turned out so well because she did make a lot of mistakes along the way. And I definitely have taken note on a lot of the things that I don't want to do as a parent and some things that I do want to do. One thing my mom was always good at was making me feel like I could do anything I wanted to, to do in life and be successful. And she was always very supportive. And for me, that took the place. For me, that was so important because, like I mentioned, there was a lot of things she wasn't doing when it came to discipline and kind of, you know, having dinner on the table at a certain time, you know, all of that type of stuff I didn't have growing up. But it also forced me to be responsible for myself and to feel like, OK, if I want it, I got to go get it because it's not necessarily going to be laid out for me. And that was the experience that I had. And no parent is perfect. We know that. You know what I mean? But again, that that I will say about my mom is she always was that force that made me feel like I could do anything that I wanted to do. My father, on the other hand, spoiled us to an extent when it came to his love, his kisses, his time, his attention. He wasn't really um, a big disciplinarian, but I don't know that that came from his childhood. I think that, you know, as an African-American person in the world that we live in, if you can if you can become successful in whatever way you can, that's something to be celebrated. And, you know, he wanted to just shower us with all the fruits of his labor, you know, and that was what his main focus was as a parent. Mm. What kind of teenager were you? Oh, my God. What kind of teenager was I? Uh, yeah. uh, a rebel without a cause. That's what's so crazy. I got I got into a lot of trouble growing up um, because my young mind, even though I was independent and had the character and all that, I also had this thing in me that just made me want to go the other way. You know, it was like this rebel, like, you want me to do this? Well, I'm going to do that. You know, and I ended up going to the wrong neighborhoods and hanging out with the wrong crowd. As I mentioned, not wanting people to know who my father was. Well, you kind of had to get away from Beverly Hills, you know, and kind of go into the hood for people not to know you and know your your surroundings and, and your circle. Right. And start mm -hmm. start a whole new um just different. I had started different relationships. And unfortunately, some of those just weren't the right people to be around. And, you know, like I said, you, you kind of become who you surround yourself with. And mm -hmm. I unknowingly surrounded myself with some people that weren't looking out for my best interests and weren't um, going in the right direction in life. And I ended up getting in trouble as well, you know, ditching school. I even ended up in juvenile hall at one point. Um, and that was something that really put my head on straight. Luckily, I was able to learn from that situation and grow from it and get right back on track because a lot of people can't say that. That's amazing. I mean, you even you just said it. It's like that stuff going through it is tough and it's hard to see the other side of it. But it, it probably made you who you are today and you know taught you a lot in that moment that 
was kind of a crash course in, in life. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, it's funny because I don't regret it at all because I met so many amazing people, had so many wonderful experiences and really got a real glimpse of the real world. Right. Mm. Um, not coming outside of the mansion that I lived in and the circle that I was around where everyone was rolling out that red carpet. You know, and, and being around other people and seeing some of the experiences that they go through, having friends mm-hmm. that had single moms working two jobs and, and watching them struggle to just kind of make ends meet. That was something that really opened my eyes and made me more of a well-rounded person. So I absolutely do not regret anything that I've been through. So, Layla, how do you for your own children, right, who are now a couple of generations probably removed from that experience? But how, how do you get them to understand and see the the plight of other black Americans in this country? You know, it's definitely a challenge um, for the reasons that you mentioned. Um, What I do is I try to take the burden off of myself for one, to Mm. feel like I have to um, fill in and overcompensate because of the lifestyle that we live, because I believe everything happens as it's supposed to. Life is gonna teach them lessons that they need to learn just the same way that it did for me. And they're going to be absolutely fine. But as a parent, it is my responsibility just to share with them, um, you know, some of the history that we've dealt with, some of the present issues that we have and teach them how to be strong individuals. The most important thing in my household is teaching my kids love, teaching my kids confidence, making sure that they understand that all people were created equal. And there's some confused individuals out there that just have it all wrong. Um, I don't want to... um, you know, teach my children a lot of the history that I feel, you know, I don't want to teach my children a lot of the history that us as African-Americans have faced um, and send them into life with this negative attitude of life is going to be harder for me. People are going to treat me different. I got to work 10 times harder, even though a lot of that might be true. I don't want to put that in their mind at such a young age. So for me, the the issue has always been when is the right time and how should the message be um, given to them to where it's not going to cast this gloom over their life that unfortunately a lot of us, including myself, learned as early as third grade when we first learned about slavery in the history books. And as a child, that's just too much for you to comprehend to see, you know, Africans with chains around their ankles and shackles. And it's like, wow, well, are we less? Well, why did this happen to us? Well, why did God let this happen to us. All these questions that children have that may be in their mind that go unanswered and can indirectly, you know, hurt their self-esteem, right? And it's something that's ingrained mm-hmm. in you at a very young age. And I believe that's by design of why the, how the system was set up. So for, of course, you know, we have the opportunity now to school our children in so many different ways. Um, I happen to be homeschooling my kids now, not only because of what's going on. I started homeschooling my kids before this situation. But, Mm. um, you know, so to answer your question, that was a very long winded answer. But it's something that I think about. It's something I take great care with. And I think that we do have to, even though we're responsible as parents, we have to be careful in the way that we relay a lot of these messages to our children. That's so real there. I mean, there really is a time for for all of that. And if you do it too early, it gives that complex and you start looking for the obstacles even before they're there and and start to think, oh, well, I can't do this because there is a ceiling here. Absolutely. To your point. I mean, if if that was a thought presser for Layla Ali, there'd be a lot of people who, you know, wouldn't be chasing their dreams today. So I love that. The great thing is, is that our children just think about they Um, You know, they learn by example, right? They learn from their environment without even us saying anything. They're learning all the time. So just for them to have had the opportunity to have a black president 
you know, just for your children and my children to have the opportunity to see their parents be successful in different areas of their life, whether it be as an athlete and just what we're doing now, that says a lot to them and it shows them that they too can do the same thing. So, I mean, you talked about your cleaning service early on. There's also Layla's Nail Studio. Tell me about Layla's Nail Studio. Oh my God, that was my baby back then. Um, you know, so one of the things that I did is, you know, I had this plan. I wrote it out and plan of action and I decided I need to go to cosmetology school so I can get a manicuring license so that I can move out the house when I was 18 so that I can get my own apartment and pay my own rent and pay my car note and take care of all these things and, and set my own schedule and then eventually open a chain of nail salons all around the you know globe. So one of the things I did is I got on the city bus after school, after high school, went to um, the hood got my manicuring license eventually, and then started working in some nail salons, and then eventually subleased my own space and opened Layla's Nail Studio, which was a legit business. I had a full clientele, um, and it was very successful. And I was living on my own, going to school full time, just like I had planned by the time I was 18. That's amazing. That's amazing. Why'd you go to the hood? Why didn't you, I guess... Beverly Hills wasn't that wasn't where you wanted to open nope. your, your your nail studio. Nope. When I went when I when I checked when I did my research, I realized that there was a school that I needed to go to, and it happened to be in the area. Um, there was like the street was Crenshaw and Fifty Fourth, and I was like, "Whoop, that's where I have to go because they had a program." that I could do with the hours that I need to be there after school. So you're thinking about getting out of school every day and then having to go take a 45 minute bus ride across town to get there, to be there say from five to, to eight or, or five to nine, whatever it was. So I had to, that's where the program was, that's where I went. So for Layla's Nail Studio, where did you get the money to fund that? Was it a loan? Did, did you save up? So luckily I had a situation where the owner of the salon that I subleased space from gave me the space in the back of his salon. So it had a separate entrance and everything, but technically it was mm -hmm. a part of this building that he turned from a home into a business. So I started small, you know, it's like I started with a little small table, you know, a couple of nail polishes. And as I ended up, and as I continued to grow my clientele and make more money, I just started buying more and more and more. And it just grew into the salon that it ended up being. I had my, I had Layla's nail studio probably for almost two years up until the time that I decided to start boxing. So now you're running a legit business at 18 years old with your name on it, Layla's nail studio, not Ali, Layla's nail studio. My, everything got my name on it. Everything, even now. Everything. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. So at 18 years old, what is this, what is this teaching you about like finances? Because now again, you're running the finances for an entire business. Oh man, there was so much responsibility there because of course, you know, it was all fun to do nails and have this idea, but now you got to make sure you got your business license and your insurance. You have to make sure that you got, you know, your products in stock, you're, you're scheduling people on the hour. You have to make sure that you're done on time. You got to make sure you show up on time. Then on top of that, I had to do home, you know, homework, schoolwork, all of that, mm. deal with my personal finances outside of the business, you know, managing people as a manicurist, you're kind of a therapist. You're sitting there, you're holding people's hand, you're talking to them. They're your clients. They confide a lot of things into you. You want to also do an amazing job so that they refer other people to you. You know, I'm, I'm figuring out ways to grow my business, setting pricing plans. I mean, there's all these nail sh shops on every different corner, trying to figure out how I was going to set myself apart you know, how I was going to make my service special so that, you know, it, it would make sense why I was charging more than the average, um, you know, salon spa in the area. Yep. 
So these are all things that I was thinking about at a young age, and it gave me a tremendous um, sense of responsibility and work ethic. Work ethic and responsibility. Now, do you think like those attributes that you gained by being an entrepreneur, running your own business, helped you as a professional athlete? Probably. Um, I think that I don't know what came first or in what order it happened, but I've always been the mm-hmm. type of person that, you know, first there's a desire, then I figure out the plan. And then I have to decide what, you know, what is it going to take, right? Is this something I'm willing to invest in? Is this something I'm willing to do? Do I want this bad enough? Is the passion there? That's how I weigh things even now. When people come to me with any opportunity, the first thing is like, hmm, is there a spark of interest? If there's no interest, it's like no pass. But if there's a spark of interest, oh, okay, well, what's it going to take to make this work? How much time do I have to put in? Am I going to be able to stay in this for the long haul? Because, you know, when the going gets rough, there's that passion and desire you know, and the reasoning, you know, the purpose behind what you're doing that really kicks into play. So I can't really say when I figured this all out, but I think it's been there from the beginning because I've always felt like I could do anything that I want to do. It's just a matter of what I decide to do, you know, just a matter of where I'm going to focus my energy. Because, you know, like you said, all these different opportunities come here and there. And as an entrepreneur, one of the hardest things you have to do is decide when to say no, because we're always going to reason with why I need to do this and how this could grow my business and how this connection could be good. But if you're all over the place and you're, you spread yourself too thin, then, then you're going to fall apart that way, too. So it's always decisions, decisions, decisions on a daily basis. I mean, I might need a mentor because that's the problem <laughs> I have. I, I, when you don't get opportunities, you're like, Yo, I wanna, you say yes to everything. And like you said, you stretch yourself too thin and nothing gets the kind of attention that it needs. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And that's what people mm. don't think about. And I've talked to, I, talk, I speak a lot about this. And I also share this with other women because we're like, yes, people all the time. And we always feel like we need to say yes. And it's mean to say no. And it's like, no, because every time you say yes, and then your schedule fills up, you got to say no to your kids. You got to say no to your husband. You got to say no to your me time. You got to say no to the project that you've been putting off because you have filled up all your time doing stuff for other people or doing things you don't even want to do, but you just didn't want to say no because you didn't want to hurt people's feelings. And that's the Mm. thing. People are always going to ask. People are always looking for opportunities, right? But you just have to learn how to figure out which ones fit for you because you're going to end up saying no one way or another. No, that's real, man. That is so real. So, okay. So you talked about, especially talking to women and, and, and giving that nugget to, you know, women who, to you said, are used to saying yes to things in your boxing career. And, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong in this, but it actually wasn't your father who motivated you to get into boxing. Is that right? Absolutely. You're right. You did your homework. Who, so who was it? So women in the ring, seeing women in the ring for the first time is what inspired me to become a boxer. I never thought of becoming a fighter, had my share of street fights, but never thought I want to get in the ring and become an athlete. I was never, I never even participated in sports. Never. At school, in, in, in school, out of school, just was not an athlete. I saw women's boxing as I turned on the television to watch a Mike Tyson fight. And as soon as I saw it, I was all the way in. I was like, oh, my God, how did I not know that women fought? And I absolutely wow. wanted to do it. I remember my best friend at the time was there. She's like, yeah, girl, you can do it. Because she knew how tough I was. Her father was <laughs> like, girl, they will take your head off. You're a pretty girl. You don't need to fight. I kind of tuned him out, went home that night dreaming about becoming a professional fighter. And then, of course, when I woke up, all the fear, the doubt, 
all that, you know, kind of set in like, come on now, you've been, you remember I told you what I did. I had taken the bus to go learn how to do nails. I had my business. I was in school. Everything was on track after even getting in trouble and going to juvenile hall. I did all this. I worked so hard. And now you're talking about throwing it all away for something you know nothing about. So for me, I talked myself out of it. And it took me about a year, about a year to actually start training because that seed had been planted. And I said, being who I, I am, the planner, and very realistic, I said, you know what? I want to do it, but I don't know if I have what it takes. So let me do my research. Let me go to a boxing gym. Let me start training. I'm going to tell everybody that I'm just training. I'm just working out. I'm not going to tell them I'm thinking about becoming a professional fighter because I first had to search within myself and make sure that mm -hmm. I wanted to do the work that it took to make sure that I wanted to face the public ridicule and all that. If I want to face my father, I knew he wasn't going to like it. So I started training and six months into it, I had fell in love with it. Now I'm going to school, work, boxing gym every night. Six days a week, eight o'clock at night, I'd come into that gym after school and work and train for two hours. And I loved every moment of it. And, um, you know, I, I had made my mind up. And then when my father heard about it, it got back. The news finally got back around to him and he was not happy. <laughs> really? He wasn't he wasn't with it. He was not with it. His advice to me was don't do it. It's too hard. It's not for women. It's a man's sport. And that's after wow. he tried to indirectly talk me out of it by saying, you know, what you going to do if you get knocked down, knocked out, you know, how tough all these people are going to be watching you, all this pressure is going to be on you. And as I answered him, I'm going to do what you did, dad. I'm going to get back up. I'm going to face it. I'm ready. You know, he got really frustrated because he's thinking this little girl don't even know. She just does has no idea. You can imagine if your child came to you and said something and you're just trying to get this message through to them. So then that's when he just gave it to me. And I said, well, dad, you know, I respect how you feel, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I would like to tell you that eventually he came around, he apologized to me after I won some titles, came to one of my fights. I mean, he had been to some, but he came to one particular fight, told me he wanted to talk to me after the fight. And then he says, you know what? I was wrong. You can fight. Mm. Women can fight. And I'm proud of you. And that was the most amazing feeling because I had made myself believe that I didn't care what he thought because I, you know, because I had to put this armor on. I had to go out there and do it regardless of what he thought regardless of what anyone else thought, because this is my life and I had to live it for myself. And, um, but it, we both cried together in that moment and it gave me a tremendous oh. amount of, of, of pride and warmth knowing that my father thought that I was good and that he started showing me, you know, how to jab. And, you know, I was like, dad, come on, it's kind of late for that. You know, I'm a champion now. You're trying to show me the first punch you learned in boxing. So yeah, but it was so cute. It was so cute. So yeah, dad, you can show me, let me put my, let me put my belt away real quick and we can... <laughs> We could, we could work out a little bit. So how, how is that? Well, when the greatest wants to teach you something, you listen, you know? <laughs> no, that's facts. That's facts. So, okay, so, so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, especially, you know, your father, someone whose opinion you already, you know, appreciate and respect. And then especially, like you said, he's the greatest in this arena you're going into. That takes an extreme amount of confidence to be able to get that kind of feedback and opinion and still kind of plow through that barrier and say, no, I know what is for me is for me. So what advice do you have for people in that situation, especially women who run into that in every industry in America, um, that they have to understand that and, and continue on a track that they know is for them? I cannot stress this anymore to say you have to follow your own heart. Think about me. I'm a young girl, 18 years old, daughter of Muhammad Ali, and my own father the greatest boxer of all time tells me not to box. It's not for me. It's not for women. What if I would have listened to him? 
I would have never mm. became a fighter. Okay. I would have never fulfilled that passion and that dream that was inside of me. And I'm telling you, a lot of people say, okay, so what? You could do all things you're doing now. No, everything that I'm doing now stemmed from my first love, which was boxing. And it always will be my first love. Always. I've never loved anything more than I love boxing, actually being in the ring fighting. And that's real talk. So if I wouldn't have listened to my, if, if I would have listened to my father, I would have never realized that dream. I would have had that void inside myself because I, I would have always wondered what if, what if, right? Now you mm-hmm. see women's boxing is in the Olympics, is, is, is growing some more exposure. I'd have been sitting back thinking, man, you know, at 40 something, I wish I would have done that. But mm-hmm. my father didn't tell me not to do it because he was trying to hurt my feelings. It's because he believed that it wasn't for women. He believed that I wasn't going to be able to do it. He believed that it was going to be too tough for me. He had the fear. Okay. So Mm. if I would have let him put that over on me, then that would have just stopped me dead in my tracks. Now he came back and apologized and said he was wrong. Well, it would have been too late for me. Right. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, is when you take that story and people let other people's thoughts and feelings and, you know, experiences, Stop them from doing what they need to do. You don't need to listen to anybody but yourself. And of course, you want to surround yourself with people, the right people who can give you guidance, who can give you, you know, knowledge, who can help you along the way because you want to have people you can confide in. But at the same time, ultimately, you have to follow your own intuition. If you don't know what that is, if you haven't ever felt it, you need to figure it out. You need to get yourself a self-help book and figure out what your intuition is and how to listen to it, because that's what I use to guide me, because You know, there's going to be times when I'm unsure and someone may say, do it. And I'm saying, I don't know. I'm going to go with what I want to do, because if I make a mistake, I want to say, "Okay, I made the wrong choice personally, but it's what I felt was right at the time. So now it's not a failure. It's a learning experience. But if I listen to somebody else over how I felt truly inside, then I'm going to feel like that was a failure because I knew I should have done it. And I listened to that person. And we've all been through that before where we didn't listen to our own intuition. And you're like, dang. So the sooner you can learn to, yeah, gather your information, gather, you know, your thoughts, think things through, come up with a plan, but then get ready, set, go on your own intuition, the quicker you're going to really find your place in life and your your true confidence in life. So a big part about you know, boxing, you're, 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 you're in the career, not only in the career, you're, you're the best period. I mean, you're everywhere. You're living up to the height, which is a hard thing to do. You know, the, but a big part of boxing is negotiating the purse. So do you think your business background helped you in that? And what advice do you have peop- for have for people in negotiating the most money in a situation, a business deal, negotiation, sports, you name it? The thing is, when I was boxing, my ex-husband at the time actually negotiated my boxing contracts and, you know, he knew what he was doing. Um, So that was something that Mm. I didn't really have to focus on. I would say now for someone, um, you got to know your own value first. You have to know what the going rate is. Right. Um, So you Mm. have to have that information and make sure that you're not getting cheated um, because you're a woman or because you're African-American or, or just because someone wants to get over you. But at the same time, you got to be yeah. realistic because, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to how many tickets can you sell? How many people want to watch you? How much name value is there? What do you bring into the table? Right. What's, what's your value in terms of all of that? Right. And now we have all these different yeah. things that people look at. Oh, well, how many, you know, social media followers do you have? You know, and all these different things. So you really need to be aware of what you're bringing to the table in terms of everything that I just mentioned and more. And then, you know, you want to make sure that you just stand your ground. But for me, I'm always willing to walk away. 
So mm. if I have come up with, you know, what I feel I should get and I have my bottom line number, whether I've shared that or not, if I can't at least get that, I have to be willing to walk away. That's really, really what it comes down to. The power to deal is the ability to say no. Absolutely. Because, you know, usually if you don't have the ability to say no, um, and if you're going to just take anything, you're going to give off that energy at some point and that's what you're going to get. You know, so a lot of times, you know, I put things in God's hands and I say, look, whatever is meant to be, let it be. If this is meant for me, it's going to happen. If it's not, then it won't. So most of the time when it comes to just speaking engagements, anything like that, everything that I'm doing now, you know, it's like, you know, I have a team of people. We come up with with whatever the numbers are. We put them out there. And and when people start hiring you and then you're able to say, oh, this is what I get. You could check my numbers. But if I if I if I accept a whole lot lower, that's going to get around, too. And then people are going to start thinking that they can start, you know, paying you that. So there's a lot of um, strategy to it as well. But at the end of the day, yeah. you have to know your value and you have to be willing to be consistent in terms of what you're bringing to the table. For me, I always want anyone that I've ever worked with to feel like. Um, they got their value, that they're they're happy at the end of a deal, you know, so that, you know, if it's a speaking engagement that I killed it, you know, that they're going to want to book you more, whether it be the speakers bureaus, you know, they look good. If they supply you as a speaker and you kill it and you do a great job, you're easy to work with, you show up on time, all of that has to do with it. You know, that has to do with, you know, just your ethics and how you do business. And that's something that for me is consistent across the board. If I'm in the ring, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to show up. I'm going to weigh in. I'm going to make weight. You know, I'm going to put on a good show and I'm going to stop and I'm going to talk to the fans when it's over. So all the things that, you know, you're supposed to be doing, you want to make sure you do that consistently. And then your deals, your money, your success will start rolling um, consistently as well. It all happens for a reason. It just doesn't drop out of out of nowhere. So, Layla, do you stay involved in the pay disparity in women's boxing or even women's pro sports in general? I'm a past president of Billie Jean King's organization, the Women's Sports Foundation. So Mm. I definitely have an idea of what's going on, but it's not something that I focus on full time. In terms of Mm -hmm. women's boxing, um, women are now making more money if they're able to you know, bring an audience to the table. So you have some of the Olympians that, that, um, you know, won the Olympics and now they've gone on to have pro careers. They're doing really well. You have more competition in women's boxing being that it's in the Olympics. It inspires more people to want to participate because they have the opportunity to go fight for their country. My career, um, you know, brought a whole new crop of fighters because of the attention that I brought to the sport being the, having the last name Ali, you know, had a lot of eyes on me. So now you're seeing those girls that started training, starting to fight now. So you see it growing, but it's st- there's still a disparity there in terms of, you know, what women make compared to men. Um, you know, if you just look at the paper and you say, oh, you know, this person won a gold medal and now they're going pro, they should make, be making millions of dollars, but as a female, so she's not. But at the same time, you know, that person, that person also doesn't have as big of an audience as maybe they would have had because women's boxing hasn't grown yet. So it, you, there's really a lot of factors there. It's not just male versus female. So it's really a little more complicated than that. I mean, when you, I, you had an incredible professional boxing career. And, you know, it's funny because I remember being, what, 12 or 13 and, you know, watching Layla Ali kind of come on the scene. And I wasn't a boxing fan by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't follow it. I didn't care. I was a football kid. I was like, I want to play in the NFL. That was my thing. But I remember when you came on the scene and I would be telling people like, yo, have you seen Layla Ali? Yo, she's back. Like, she's a beast, man. You got to see. You got to pay attention. And it seems little, right, in that story. But again, I was a, a, a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. 
And it never occurred to me that, oh, women shouldn't be boxing or, you know, they're not stars. Or I, I can't take that serious. And there's a generation of young girls, yes, that you inspired, obviously, and changed the course of a lot of, of their lives. But for young men as well, like for me, and it, it carries through to who I am today. I, I mean, I, it was just literally an afterthought. And that image of Layla Ali being a champion and, and being the forefront, being having the sponsorships and the visibility, that changed a lot of mindset, even for the young, the young men of that generation. So very important. And yeah, just a kudos to you in general. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I've said before also, like when I was talking about um, President Obama and us being having the opportunity mm-hmm. to see that. It's the same with you. Our minds are different than generations before because there isn't any limit because you grew up watching girls fight. You grew up watching girls play football, wrestling, yep. doing all these things, driving, you know, in NASCAR. So that alone is going to be growth and expand the human experience in our world, right? All these things are important. And that's why, you know, um, I, like I said, we learn visually without anyone ever even teaching us. So thank you. I'm glad that I had that impact on you. Um, and I think that, you know, that's why we should always remember that, you know, those coming behind us are always watching. Absolutely. That representation is so important. All right. Now let's get back to my conversation with Layla Ali. So, I mean, for you, you, you juggle a bunch of things. We talked about you as a businesswoman, an entrepreneur. I mean, spices, skincare, uh, cookbook, TV personality. How do you stay successful, focused, and give adequate attention to everything you have on your plate? You know what? Um, that is the struggle of my life is keeping balance, right? Because as you mentioned, I have my hand in so many different pots, or should I say so many irons in the fire, Um, But it's so natural to me. I've always been like a mover and a shaker and always got something going on. And my husband is always reminding me to slow down, take some time for yourself. And this is something I say to other people, but you get caught up in the moment because I'm like, oh, this has to get done and that has to get done. It's like from the time I wake up in the morning, I don't sit down until I get in the bed, really. So my husband is, thank God, my partner that reminds me when I need to take a break. But I think that it really comes to your... I think it really comes down to your priorities. For me, it's family first, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I wake up in the morning, I kiss my kids, I tell them how much I love them. I come, first thing I do is I come downstairs, turn on my coffee maker, come to my husband's office, which I'm sitting in right now, and uh, tell him I love him, give him a hug. That's how I start my day. Then I go into the office and figure out, okay, this is what I need to do today, you know, get my workout in. But I stop, you know, cook lunch for my kids when I'm home. Um, you know, I, I stop, I make dinner for the family. You know, the, I don't have a nanny, you know, me and my husband are very hands-on with our kids. So that's, that keeps it real. You know, we don't have a bunch of help around yeah. like this has to get done. You know how it is with your kids. Like they don't care how many businesses you got or what you have going on when they need their time, they need their time. So as a mom who does wear so many hats, it's a constant struggle. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I have to admit. And, and, and you do all of that, like you said, and you're a full-time mom, you're making the meals, you're homeschooling. So I feel like you have more hours in your day than the rest of humans. I don't understand how you're doing everything. (laughs) No, I absolutely do not. I need more hours in the day. Thank God I (laughs) picked a man that is so good Mm. at what he does because, honey, I'm taking all the credit for for picking him because my husband actually takes the lead with homeschool. You know, I'm here doing this with you. I was like, look, I need you to make breakfast this morning. I don't have any. He doesn't have any problem doing that. If I have certain projects that I'm working on. 
you know, he's like, you want me to make dinner all week? I'm like, cool. You know, I'm going to come in there and critique him and be like, make sure you use these spices and get on his nerves a little bit. But, um, you know, we work it out between the two of us. But I think that, again, when your priorities are in place, um, you know, you, you find a way to figure it out. So finances in your children. I mean, you talked about you didn't think about money growing up. What are some of the things you instill in your children about finances and things you want to teach them early on that hopefully you know, make them self-sufficient as they get older? So my children are definitely, um, I would say, a little spoiled when it comes to just getting, getting more than they um, need, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that I'm guilty of that. Um, not over the top, but I'm saying like, for example, they got the iPads and they got the iPhone and they have their computers and they have their VRs. It's like, how many things, these things do you need? And unfortunately what happens is, is that they, they get these things and they don't even realize how much they cost. And then when something new comes out, oh, I want this one. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, and then nowadays with these kids, everything's online, right? In terms of payment and these cards, like you press a button. It's like, can I have some, some money on iTunes or can I buy this game? It's $29, it's $49. I mean, do you realize how much money that is? But they don't actually see the money being made. You know, right. they just, they're just pressing these buttons. So that's when my husband and I realized, you know, we really need to teach them about money because they're going to be in for a big surprise when they get older and realize, oh, I have to work for this money. So now, you know, we, we give them allowance and they have to understand, like, so if they're getting $20 a week and then you turn around and ask me to spend $49 on a game, now you have to decide, man, it took me a couple weeks to earn this money. Do I want to spend all of that on this one game so they can under have some sort of a value there in their mind and what they're spending their money on? So that's one way that's really been helpful. I make them save a percentage of their allowance and the money they get, whether it be for Christmas or their birthday or anything like that. Um, so they have their own bank account set up. Um, they keep track of, you know, when they're taking money out, like, okay, you want a hundred dollars, you're going to get it, take it out of your money. Well, we're going to subtract that. This is what you have left. So they're learning in that way. Okay. So the kids get allowance, uh, from, from you and your husband, do they earn that allowance or is it just a weekly thing that you give them that they have their own bit of money? Yes. My kids have to earn their allowance. They have chores that they do real simple chores, but really it's all about just feeling like they're doing something consistently and that they're contributing to the household. That's the vibe that I give them. Look, we all want to contribute. So I want them to take those lessons and apply them everywhere else in their life to not just live off of the situation, but to actually bring something to the table. So yeah, they don't have a lot of hard chores, but they definitely have to do chores. But I'm constantly always telling them when I see homeless people or when I see a man that you can tell is living in his car, I'll say, look, you see that? That man lives in his car. You know, see, that's all of his stuff in there. You know, you never know what happened to him. And they're like, why are you telling us that? Okay, why are you telling us that? And I know at some point it's going to connect and they're going to understand, you know, this is this is real. This person's right next to us in our neighborhood and you see this, you know. So mm-hmm. just making them aware of these things, making sure that we have diverse um friendships, people around us with different backgrounds. We're not just hanging around people who, you know, their, their, their parent is an athlete or an entertainer. You know, they have friends with, mm-hmm. you know, parents who go to work, you know, they might work in the school system or the healthcare system or things like that. So those are the types of things that I had exposure to and I got a really well-rounded way of living. But no, I don't want my kids to have to go to juvenile hall or get in trouble like that to learn the lessons that I did. But it's definitely something yeah. that I think about. For black Americans, I mean, especially descendants of the enslaved people in this country, it has been tough historically from that time to pass generational wealth on to the next generation as it goes. So for you, understanding your experience as a, as a child 
and now being a parent of your own, like what is the one thing for you that you're understanding? Like I have to make sure my kids know this before I leave God's green earth. Ooh, that's a tough question. There's so much, but I would think that I really want them to understand the power that they have within um, to Mm. not only um, change the world, but also to be successful in life, whatever it is that they mm-hmm. um, are going to view as success. And hopefully it'll be similar to what I um, view as success, not necessarily having a certain amount of money, but doing what makes you happy and being able to obviously live a good life, have the things that you want, be able to provide for your family, but at the same time, being able to give back in some sort of a way and having that balance in life is when, to me, you've really been able to find success So I just want them to understand that this doesn't come from anyone else. It doesn't come from, you know, anything anyone else can do for you. It's all about what you can do for yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something that's really important to me um, to teach to my children Um, and not just thinking like, oh, I just need some money so I can go buy a certain car or I can buy some name brands that you're not taking none of that stuff with you when you leave this earth. And unfortunately, it isn't. And unfortunately, it isn't until we get older that we start thinking about our life, you know, our legacy and all of that. When you get in your 40s, right, when you start thinking about that um, and really thinking, what can I intentionally do, you know, with purpose Mm -hmm. to make sure that I leave my mark, that I leave this this earth better than it was when I got here. You talk about entrepreneurship, being a businesswoman. Most people think of like making money, but you talk about it and you always speak in terms of lessons and growing as a person. Is that intentional? I think it's really important to make money. Um, and I am money motivated, you know, and that could sound like a contradiction to all of the things that I've been saying. But at the end of the day, doing good business means that you're making money, right? Especially if you're selling products. And if you can pay your own bills, if you can put food on the table, if you can get your kids a good education, now you can relax a little bit and you can focus on philanthropy. You can focus on giving back to other people. But if you're worried about feeding your own family, you know, and where your next check is going to come from, you're not going to even be able to think about that. You know, you're not going to be able to think about helping other people when you're trying to help yourself. So, yeah. I think one thing to understand is it's okay to make money. Like I've, I've seen before people on my Instagram page, you're always selling something. I'm like, you damn sh- sure I am because I have some <laughs> spice blends. I have some skincare and I'm going to promote my products the same way these other big corporations promote products to you and you go buy them. So don't get mad because I'm promoting my own products. You don't have to buy it, but they're products I can feel good about because behind my brand, there's a purpose. And the purpose is, is to uplift people encourage them to be the best version of themselves, encourage them to put good products on their skin, in their body. You know, it's all about health, mindset, and purpose in life. So all those things are tied together. And I'm a business person, of course. But to your point, I think that's definitely not the most important thing because, you know, money is just money. You know, you can't take it with you, like I said, when you leave this earth. So you have to have a passion and character behind the brand. And that's something that I've been cultivating for many years and been very consistent with. Your first big check that you earned, what did you do with it? What did you spend it on? Oh I, should, I, should, I should ask this question. What is the dumbest thing that you bought in adulthood <laughs> that you're like, man, if I could go back after I earned this check, I would not buy this thing? The dumbest thing that I did with a, a large lump sum of money was buy a brand new car right off the lot sticker price. (laughs) Now I'm a young girl. So, you know, they saw that fresh meat just like, Oh, okay. And I'm like, 
I want that car. I didn't try to negotiate nothing. Just paid sticker price, bought it, drove off and didn't have a problem with it. Now, of course, I know that was not the thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll take that. I'll take that. What kind of car was it? It was a Chrysler Sebring. Do you remember that car when it came out? It was a two door. I remember the Sebring. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was silver, two door. And I mean, there, there wasn't hardly any on the street. And here I am rolling. I mean, I thought I was all that and then some. So especially remember I told you my first car was a 77 Toyota Celica bucket. That thing used to break down every every few miles and start overheating. Um, I never even registered the car. It was so raggedy and broke down before I even had the opportunity. But yeah, so that that Chrysler was my everything. Couldn't tell you nothing in that Sebring. I love it. All right, it's my last question. Now, I've been watching. I've been seeing the verbal sparring between you and Clarissa Shields. I mean, I know you're still in shape. I know you still got hands, Layla. What is preventing y'all from fighting? What is going on? Give it to me. Well, I got to give you a little bit of context now. You set that up so well. But let me just make one thing clear. Let me make one thing clear. Clarissa reached out to me before she went to the Olympics a second time for some mentorships, for some advice, which I gave to her. was very nice, supported her, uplifted her. You can go mm-hmm. back and see the things that I've done. I posted on Facebook, on my Instagram page. I even went and, and interviewed her at the Olympic Training Center in uh, Colorado, you know, for the show I used to do called We Need to Talk. All these things that I've done before, people don't realize all that. Then all of a sudden she started saying things publicly to disparage my legacy that I built for myself. And I started to see this pattern. I said, oh, OK. Mm. And she told me when I met her, she said, right now, if you ask someone who's the greatest female fighter, they say you. Said, I want that to be me. So she basically told me, I want to replace you. And I was like, okay. She said that straight to my face. And I was like, okay. And I thought to myself, that's your mistake right there because you need to not be worried about me and my legacy. You need to create your own lane because there's only one lane that's mine. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be able to take that. You know, not only because of a bunch of reasons I won't say, but just the fact that I'm Muhammad Ali's daughter, there's only going to be one lane for that type of you know, attention that I have. Right. And then the fact that I'm a quadruple threat, we don't even need to go into that. But aside from that, you know, she started saying these things about me. And I, so I stopped supporting her. I just stopped posting. I stopped. I didn't say anything negative because she's a young girl. She has a certain background and, you know, I'm at a certain level. I'm not going to come back and start, you know, making it an issue. But then she called me out. I said something that she didn't like. Um, somebody asked me, would I come back and fight again? And I simply said, I didn't think there was anybody there that would give me a challenge that inspired me to come back. That's my right to feel that way. She took that personal, called me out. And that's how this whole conversation got started. So at a certain point, I said, look, y'all come up with the right amount of money. Yeah, I'll come back. That'd be fun. So to answer your question, you know, it would have to make Mm -hmm. sense. We're sitting here talking about all of these things that I'm doing. And you're saying at 42 years old, right? regardless of the fact that I'm in shape, obviously I'd have to train to get in boxing shape, but I live a healthy lifestyle. I'm not getting up off the couch. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't hang out. You know, I, I, I'm, I have a nutrition product, you know, I eat clean. So I'm a healthy 42. I'm an active 42. So could I do it? Yes, I technically could, but would it have to make sense? Absolutely. Because I have to stop everything that I'm doing and focus on fighting That would have to make sense for me to do. But it would absolutely be fun to me to come back and swoop up all these titles and accolades that she's gotten for herself and just take them all in one swoop. Of course, I would love to do that. But Mm. it would have to make sense. We got to get the money right. That's why we don't (laughs) need no. They got to get the money right. 
make the prices up. It got to make sense. Absolutely. And, you know, right now dealing with the pandemic and everything that's going on, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's definitely gotten in the way because, you know, there had been some offers at a certain point. They weren't serious offers, but there sh it showed that the possibility mm -hmm. could happen. Right. Um, and I have some unfinished business um, in terms of inside of me. Um, it has to be more than just somebody calling you out. Right. Obviously, yep. there was all there was always something in me that wanted to get back in there, but it had to be the right situation and the right person to inspire me. And she helped create that situation. So I thank her and I hope that it does happen because, um, you know, I would love to go ahead and, and do all the things that I told you I want to do for the history books. That would be absolutely fun to me to be able to do. I didn't get to fight the I didn't get to fight in the Olympics because women's boxing wasn't in the Olympics. So for me to come back and beat somebody who's won gold twice and got all these championship titles at 42, <laughs> I got nothing to lose. She has everything to lose. So, you know, I would love to be able to do that because I would feel like I won the Olympics. I love it, man. You are a fighter through and through <laughs> from the beginning to the end. Your work ethic uh, your regimen, you could just see it shine through as a fighter, entrepreneur, as a mom, a wife, multi-hyphenate, you name it. Layla, I cannot thank you enough for having this conversation. It has truly been a pleasure here on Needing Dough. I appreciate it. And all the best to you and your family. That's it for this episode of Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Chase and Uninterrupted. Be sure to check out Chase Chat's webcast over at chase.com forward slash Chase Chats. They're always adding new webcasts about financial topics, and you can schedule online a talk with a banker about how to make the most of your money. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Until then, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free. It helps other people find the show, and that way, you'll never miss an episode. Our executive producers are myself and John Fontanelli. This episode was produced by Logan Castradale, and our editor and engineer is Chris Watherspoon. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.